Hey, Haftes. Welcome back to another episode of Hafte Hafte. I'm your co-host, Wintana. And I'm Naz. And we're so excited that you all decided to return for episode two. We've got a really good episode planned. We are actually excited because we're kicking off our first series, which we call Season of the Queens, aka Nagistis. And we're going to be highlighting Habesha women who we feel are trailblazers in their respective careers and communities. So on that note, I'm going to kick it off to Naz to introduce our very first guest. Yes. So our very first guest is Eden Zillow. She is the director of global brand marketing at Unilever, working on Sundial brands, which includes the Shea Moisture, Nubian Heritage, Naeko, MCJW, and Emerge brands. Eden manages sales, distributions, and marketing globally in Canada, Europe, Australia, Africa, and Latin America. She partners with distributors, retailers, uh, marketing agencies, and other suppliers in order to engage with the end consumer and drive global business and brand strategy. Eden also holds prior strategy experience at Samsung and served as an analytics consultant at Booz Allen Hamilton. Outside of work, Eden enjoys traveling, which has been mostly put on hold due to the pandemic, and cooking, which she's been doing a lot more of during the pandemic. Eden holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a bachelor's in operations research from MIT. Welcome, Eden. Thank you so much, Naz and Wintana. Really excited to be here with you both today. Yay, we're excited to have you. Before we get into all of our questions, I just want to ask, you know, how are you doing? We've been in this pandemic for a year now, so I want to do a little mental health check and see how you've been. Yeah, thanks for asking that. I've been doing good. You know, I feel like pretty fortunate. I still have my job. You know, everyone in my family and close, you know, friends have been healthy. So very thankful for that. I know that I am getting a little bit of cabin fever, but now the weather is finally starting to warm up here on the East Coast. I'm looking forward to, you know, spending some more time outdoors, getting some, you know, some more sun. And I think that that will definitely help, you know, boost my mood on a day to day basis. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, I'm so forward looking to the summer. I just want to know, like, I know that you really enjoy traveling. What was your favorite, like, travel destination before COVID? That's a tough one. But I have to say that my favorite trip, like, right uh, right before COVID was going to Accra, Ghana um, in December 2019 for the year of return. It was an amazing, amazing experience. I was there for work. So it was definitely, you know, a lot of work, but also a lot of play. And I just had so much fun, uh, you know, being there with my whole team. Um, I had been to Ghana like, a couple times before, but, uh, you know, a lot of my friends were there for the first time. And I got to, you know, visit like the Shea Butter Cooperatives that where we source all our Shea Butter from. So it was just a like, super, you know, amazing experience. Oh, that sounds so amazing. Across like number one on my list is like uh, for travel destinations. So I'll definitely be hitting you up for the recommendations on that. I can definitely help with that. Awesome. And now that the world is going to be opening back up, hopefully before, you know, the summer starts, like, do you have any post-COVID plans? Yeah. So um, actually, I wanted to take my mom to Italy last year for her birthday. Um, it was in October. So it got put on hold to the pandemic. So I'm hoping that we can maybe do this trip this year. I'm also looking forward to, you know, getting back to Africa and hopefully like other, you know, islands in the Caribbean as well. Oh, that sounds so amazing. I feel like there's like a... It goes to say that like traveling with your parents is like probably one of the most like best experiences that you can have. I think you just learn more about each other. So I really hope that like you guys can make that happen this year, you know, God willing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, awesome. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and get into these questions. So this is a question that we plan to ask all of our guests when they come on to the podcast. So as an Eritrean woman, what is your favorite thing about being Eritrean? 
And then the second part to that question, I think Naz mentioned that you've been doing a little cooking during this pandemic. So I'd love to hear what your favorite Eritrean dish is as well. Okay, so I love Eritrean culture. I really love like our fashion, the way that we dress, like the gold, um, the henna, and like the just the culture is so beautiful to me. So I've always like just really been a fan of that. I also just feel like Eritrean women are so strong and resilient, and they really, you know, they're really like the core of of the family in a lot of cases. And so I really like look up to them and am inspired by them. And so I would say like, definitely, you know, love our culture, love the women. And I have a lot of, you know, strong Eritrean women in my family that I look up to in terms of food. So my favorite food is shiro. I actually know how to, it was like the first thing I learned how to make and um, like of Eritrean food. And um, yeah, like I love, you know, uh, shiro and, you know, I can make it pretty easily. You know, I, I, I used to cook it a lot when I was living on my own and it's still one of my favorite meals. So I love to have shiro. Nice. I love that you mentioned women being the core because in our first episode, me and Naz both talked about how our mothers are both our inspirations and how, and then when you just said like women are the core of the household, it's so true. Like they're the glue, they're the core. And I just feel like Eritrean women, Eritrean mothers just have a level of resilience that is unmatched. So we definitely agree with you on that. And then when it comes to Shudo, I love me some Shudo. I do we talked about this in our first episode too. I'm a, my favorite food has to be God just because I just feel like it has so much working for it. I don't know. But shudo is definitely top five. So I agree with you on that. Yeah, I love shudo. You cut up some jalapenos on the side. Oof, yeah. It's unmatched. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Well, speaking of food, I know it's again, we mentioned you've been cooking a lot. What's been your favorite quarantine recipe? Yeah, so I actually made this really amazing salmon fried rice um, a few months ago. I had like some leftover salmon and I was just like really uninspired by it. So I thought, you know, why not, you know, make it into a rice? <laughs> um, so I just like chopped up some like vegetables that I had on hand, like add a fried egg at the end. And it was really, really good. So I just I love like just kind of thinking through like new recipes with like things that are kind of existing in the fridge and like just trying to be creative. I also recently got an air fryer, which has been an amazing addition to my kitchen. I made like some French French fries the other day that were really good. I've made like some other, you know, fish dishes in there as well. But yeah, I'm looking forward to like continuing to cook as we still are stuck at home. So we're we're moving back in together in New York soon. And we're both like, okay, we got to get an air fryer. Like I don't have an air fryer here at, at my house, but I know that when we go back to New York, like that's literally what I'm about to use to cook every meal. So we're on the same page. I agree with you on the air fryer. Air fryers have a chokehold on the black community like the George Foreman girl did back in the 90s. Like, I don't know a single black person who does not have an air fryer. (laughs) It's so easy to use. It's like a 10-minute meal every day. It's amazing. So I highly recommend Naz. I can't believe you brought that back up. (laughs) I mean, I had to. It's just, it's on brand for our community. (sighs) I'm dead. So in terms of cooking, though, like, have you impressed your mom with any recipes recently, like during COVID, pre-COVID? Yeah. So, you know, Eritrean mothers are really tough to please. You know, I think I can count on one hand the number of compliments I've gotten from my mom, but I actually did impress her once a couple years ago. I had made like pasta, salmon, I think like some vegetables. I think it was like spinach or something. And um, it was like at my apartment in New York. It was like one of her first times like coming to visit me. And she was like, wow, like who made this pasta sauce? It's so good. And I was like, I did. I made it from scratch. She's like, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah, you like, this is how you make your pasta sauce. Like I learned from you. 
And so it was just super like funny. And now, you know, we work together in the kitchen. Like she'll ask me for, you know, tips and tricks as well. So it feels nice that we're like, you know, that she kind of sees my cooking ability as being, you know, good, maybe not great. I'm not at her level yet by any means, but she's, she's an amazing cook. So I look up to her and it's nice to get her, you know, seal of approval. So, you know, in the future, whenever she comes over back to my house, I know that she won't be thinking that my food tastes terrible. Yes. I always say like Gordon Ramsay has nothing on immigrant mothers. So you know you're doing something right if your mom's giving you a stamp of approval. Well, I can talk about food all day, but I do want to switch gears a little bit. So right out of college, you worked at Booz Allen Hamilton for a few years. So then what made you kind of want to take a step back and eventually you know, pursue an, uh, an MBA and just a little bit more about your college journey? That's a great question, Nas. So I went to public schools uh, in the Virginia area in Fairfax County, and I was always like in the gifted and talented programs and really strong in math and science. And so when I was looking at colleges, I knew that I wanted to go to a school that had a really strong kind of like engineering mathematics background and MIT fit that bill. I actually went to MIT thinking that it'd be a biochemical engineer, uh, quickly took biology and chemistry my freshman year and decided, okay, maybe this is not going to be for me. And actually switched majors to like operations research, which was within the business school there um, at Sloan and ended up pursuing, you know, business. And then um, when I was looking at careers for post-college, I was kind of deciding between investment banking and consulting. And I actually interned at Bank of America and their investment banking arm in the consumer and retail group for my junior year summer while I was at MIT uh, in New York City. And let's just say it was like the worst summer of my life. And I knew that, again, investment banking was not for me. So when I went back to, uh, to MIT, I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on consulting and got an offer at Bazan Hamilton, which was great because it was in the, in the DMV area. Like I could come back home and I got to work on the advanced analytics team. So it was like right up my alley in terms of, you know, analytics and working on these like super cool computer simulation models, working primarily for the Department of Defense and working for a lot of like Army and Air Force clients. And I really enjoyed my time there. So I did that for three years. But then ultimately, you know, I always had this passion for like fashion and luxury and beauty as well. And I thought that like there were a lot of people that were, uh, you know, combining like business or in their own businesses or working at different, you know, companies within like the retail fashion and like beauty space. And I knew that I wanted to pivot away from consulting into more of an operational executional role and also move into a different industry, like being like, you know, fashion, retail beauty or tech. And so I figured that business school would make the most sense. And that's why I decided to go to HBS, which is where, you know, I really kind of got more involved in like the retail luxury goods club, took a lot of like luxury marketing classes and heard a lot of like retail companies come and speak. Did another internship at a fashion tech company during my MBA summer. And then ultimately landed um, at Samsung in in the strategy group on the consumer business after business school. Wow, that's amazing. I feel like it's so great to hear that, you know, you went into college with one idea and then you were able to, you know, pivot and try different things and come to like your own conclusion of like what you wanted to do. Cause I feel like, especially as like Habisha students, like as children, like our parents make us believe that like whatever you major in and like that's finite, like that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. But yeah, I feel like it's really refreshing to hear that like you, you can try different things and become really successful in it. And it's like an opportunity to learn more about yourself and what you want to do really long term. Yeah, I always think that it's better to understand what you don't want to do because I think that helps you get a lot closer to what you do want to do. I think, you know, I'm still on a journey to finding like, you know, my dream job. I love my current role. I think it's super great. But I think there's always going to be something that's like, you know, that you're going to be aiming for and you can always get closer and closer to whatever like that perfect dream job is. I think it's much easier when you kind of take away things than it is to kind of still 
like things, you know, maybe equally. So I always recommend like doing a ton of different things and just quickly realizing if you hate it, guess what? You don't have to go back to doing it again. You can just move on from that. Very true. Very true. Yeah. I love that. So, I mean, you work at uh, Unilever, you know, one of the brands that you manage is Shea Moisture. I love Shea Moisture. They always have my curls pop in, um, you know, 4C hair, type 4 hair in general. Like Shea Moisture is amazing. Um, I just want to hear more about your experience at Shea Moisture and what have been some of your favorite memories or trips that you've been on for work. Uh, yeah. So after Samsung, I came and I joined Unilever on the Shea Moisture brand doing global brand marketing. And I also, similar to you, like love the brand, had been using it, you know, since my kind of transition to curly hair in college. And I also just love like the founder story. Um, it was a like Liberian American founder that really like built the company up for, you know, 27 plus years. And so while we were super well known in the US, we still have a lot of opportunity to grow globally. So I joined the team three years ago to really think about global expansion. And I've managed, you know, the Latin America region. I've managed the Africa region. I now manage like Canada, Europe, and Australia. And I, it's a blended role where I manage like all of our sales distribution and work with our local Unilever partners in those markets, as well as lead all of our marketing efforts. So we're digital first for the most part, do a ton of like social media work. We also work with a lot of influencers. And so I got to work on a lot of like really, really cool campaigns. And um, one of my favorite trips actually was the year of return in Ghana, which I know I already mentioned, but I think the things that I did there for work were super interesting because, you know, there was Afrotella, which is like one of the biggest music festivals that happened. And we had like a Shea Moisture stand there, you know, with the year of return, we partnered uh, with the Essence Full Circle Festival crew. And it was a ton of VIPs and celebrities that, you know, had all access, VIP access all weekend. And they got this beautiful kind of like Shea Moisture gift bag when they got to the hotel. We had a Shea Moisture like pamper suite at the, you know, we are, we, there were two big hotels where people were staying. So we had one at each where you could like get your hair braided, get a hand massage you know, pick up some free products, which was like super, super great. That's actually where I got my own hair braided and it lasted throughout the entire trip. And then I did an influencer brunch where I got to invite like the CEO of my company, you know, the SVP of marketing and the head of our like social impact, uh, which we call community commerce and did a panel with one of the retailers where we sell our products in Ghana. And it's actually like a mother daughter duo. And it's like this boutique kind of like a beauty store. So they have a ton of imported brands from the US and Europe. And it was super great just understanding more about the landscape, meeting a ton of influencers. We had this like Ghanaian inspired menu and I really loved it and enjoyed it. And I think my favorite part of that trip was actually going to Tamale, which is, you know, a little bit like North, I think it's in Northern Ghana where we have our shea butter cooperatives. And I finally got to meet like the women that were, you know, making our shea butter that we use in all of our products. And like, I remember like, just, you know, it was just so nice getting to meet them, you know, put, you know, a name to their faces and just like see how happy they were. And just also understand more about how the shea butter is processed and all the hard work that they do for us. So for me, all in all, it was a great trip. So I felt like there were so many different things that we got to do as a brand. And it was also like a ton of fun because, you know, so many other people were there for fun as well. And so I really got, you know, the best of both worlds. Wow, that sounds amazing. I really want to go to Afrocella. Like I truly think Afrobeats in the summer is unmatched. Like <laughs> it takes you to a different world. And it's so nice. I didn't realize that Shea Moisture had like the social responsibility aspect of it, of just like empowering these women in, uh, in a cooperative. So that's really great to hear. I, I definitely think like an empowered woman is an empowered society. So 
Yeah. Props to Shea Moisture. Like they're influencing women all over the world, which is amazing. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah. We're very proud of what we do. And I think we even do that in the US. We support Black women entrepreneurs. We launched like a million dollar COVID relief fund in 2020 to help support Black owned businesses that, you know, were the most impacted by COVID 19. So I really love the fact that like a lot of the work that we do from a social impact perspective, like matches, you know, my core values and the things that I believe in are right as well. And it helps communities that look like me. That's been super important to me. And that's really why like I feel like this role and this brand is so great and why I really do love working there. Nice. Honestly, I don't really use Shea Moisture. I'm, I'm, I'm like giving myself away. I'm more of a Carol's daughter girl myself. But after hearing everything that you're saying and the impact that Shea Moisture, like what you guys are doing outside of just, you know, selling hair care products, I think to me, like that resonates with me a lot. Like I'd rather support a company that's doing more for black women in the black community in general than, you know, any other company. So Shout out to Shea Moisture. Props to you all. Yeah, thank you. Um, and happy to give you some recommendations too. Please do. I think I have 4A type hair. I have to double check. But yeah, any any recommendations, I'm open to it. Well, I kind of want to pivot, but also stay within the same type of conversation that we're having. To kind of transition a little bit, you know, myself and Naz, we are both women of color working in tech. And tech is a predominantly white dominated space. And so I feel like for you, this is probably something that's really relevant as well. You know, can you talk to us a little bit about how do you advocate for yourself in primarily white spaces, especially to get to where you are now, being so high up within your company? How are you able to kind of advocate for yourself to get to where you are today? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Shane Oyster, luckily, is a little bit more diverse. So I feel like a little bit, you know, more at home here. But I can definitely talk about my experience, you know, in more traditional kind of environments like Samsung, for example. I think it's super important to have a mentor and a sponsor. And I want to be really clear about this. So your mentor can look like you and mine did at Samsung. I had an African-American male as my mentor. And this was the person that I could go into his office and cry if I needed to, you know, tell him, you know, all the tea from my team or just tell him like how I was really feeling and keep it a hundred with him and know that it wasn't going to leave that room. It wasn't going to go anywhere and that, you know, he could help, you know, guide me and think through, you know, what are the solutions that can make things better for me? You know, on the same hand, it was also important for me to have a sponsor that did not look like me. So I supported a lot of, you know, VPs and SVPs on in the product marketing. And there was only, you know, one African-American woman, SVP, and basically the rest were all like white men. And so I just kind of picked the ones that I could relate to the most and just found things that, you know, I could relate to them with. And I would work on products for them. I would make sure to like over deliver on the projects and work super hard so they could see my work ethic. And then, you know, I would just go and have, you know, set up a one-on-one with them and just talk to them. So actually, I think I had two, I guess, sponsors, I would say one was like a VP and one was um, an EVP actually. And I think what was great is that I think that when you have someone that doesn't look like you, because there's still more of them, unfortunately, right, that have a seat at the table, it's important that they know who you are and they're advocating for you, right? And that's why I always say, and that's why I always recommend that, you know, your sponsor should not really look like you. You should try to pick someone that's the complete opposite of you. And, you know, it's always much easier to like look for people that look like you. Like, and for me, I always find it problematic when, you know, there's always those like African-American or black ERGs and there's always like, you know, the sponsor and there's always like two senior, you know, black people at the company. And then it's like all the black employees want like that one person to like be their mentor that like those two people to be their mentors. And I think it's like, I think it's great. Obviously, you know, you want to have, you want to be able to relate to black excellence. You want to be able to, to reach out to them and, and, and lean on them. But I think it's just so much stronger when you have someone 
that doesn't look like you, not only because they don't look like you, but because they can give you a different, different experience and different exposure. And you do have to force yourself to be comfortable. It can be uncomfortable. You do have to put yourself a little bit out there, but I think it does, you know, there are definitely rewards to doing that. Yeah. No, I love that you said that because I do think that naturally we gravitate towards like the black leaders at the company, but it's like every black person at the company wants that one person to also be their mentor, like you just said. And I think sometimes it is us just staying in our comfort zones because we feel like, well, hey, we can relate to them. Like, you know, they were probably once in our shoes, especially being a person of color. And sometimes we don't necessarily always feel like those, you know, our white counterparts can relate. And so we don't actually want to gravitate towards those people. Mm -hmm. But I think like you said, we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So that's definitely something that I want to start doing more of in my own, my own job, my own company, you know, especially when we're in a post-COVID world and we're back in office, like going up to someone who's in a higher up position who, you know, isn't a person of color. That's, that's something I want to start implementing. So I think that's great advice for our listeners as well. Yeah, good luck. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it's also nice that you distinguish the difference between a sponsor and a mentor because I really didn't know the difference between the two and like what that actually entails. So I think that's going to be a really good piece of advice to, you know, take into our roles and figure out, you know, if we're trying to achieve something or aiming for a certain promotion or role, kind of how we can navigate that space. So, I mean, being a leader and a director at Unilever, I guess I'd want to learn more about how you distinguish between wanting to be a leader versus like in a supportive or individual contributor role. That's a great question. I think that, you know, now, even when I started at Bazan Hamilton, there were actually like two different tracks between individual contributor and kind of like manager or management track. For me, I've always loved building relationships, developing talent, working with others. And so I always knew that I wanted to be in a people manager role and, you know, manage teams. And I think that was super important. Like, you know, I like working by myself and I can be an individual contributor, but I really thrive in team environments, in a collaborative environment, working with others, whether it's cross-functionally on my direct team. And I knew that in order for me to grow and eventually, you know, run my own business or continue to rise up the ranks, like, you know, I think people management is still going to be a very big part of that, leading and developing teams. And so I've always known that, like, I think it's definitely a more of a personality trait and just something that I've you know, always felt kind of, you know, aspired to be. But I think that it, what is great is that now there are these kind of individual contributor tracks for people that don't want that, because I don't think that everybody should be a people manager. You know, there are some people that are very good at being ICs and they should stay ICs. And so I think it's great that companies are starting to see that and not forcing people to kind of, okay, well, if you want to get promoted, you have to start managing a team, you know, that they can still kind of move up the ranks and get, you know, more exposure and, you know, get promoted and get, you know, you know, compensated more without necessarily having to manage a team. Because I do think that your manager is super important in your career. And so if that person isn't a good people manager, then it's not great for the team. Yes. Can I say something about that, actually? Because I've been at places where, I've seen folks who were really, really strong, like salespeople become sales managers, and they were awful managers. And it just did not make any sense. So I 100% agree with you on that. And then you talked about like managers being important. I always see this quote, or I see this people post about this a lot on LinkedIn, that people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And I think that is so true. Like from personal experience, like I left a company you know, a while back because I just like, well, I felt like it was time to leave, but also because I just really wasn't messing with my manager like that anymore. So I, and I feel like Naz knows what I'm talking about. But anyways, I like really, really believe in that. And that's something as a recruiter, like I preach to people too. So I love that you dropped that gem because that's a good piece of advice. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. And that was me too in previous experiences. You know, your manager can really make or break your career experience. And it's really unfortunate actually how much power your manager has sometimes. So I, I've mm-hmm. seen that quote before as well. And I 100% agree. You know, people, they don't leave jobs. They leave bad bosses. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Well, kind of backtracking a little bit, do we you know we kind of talked about earlier, like our parents and we as Eritrean folks and children, like we have this like pressure on us to go one way when it comes to our career. So I'd love to hear from you, you know, how are you able to steer away from the traditional path of being a doctor or a lawyer? And what were those conversations like with your parents? Yeah, so I always tell people that I was super fortunate. I feel like my parents are very much on the more like liberal side, very open and have been super supportive of me growing up. You know, and I think that it, you know, it says a lot about them and their character. And I feel like really, you know, grateful to have them as my parents because I, you know, I never felt that pressure, to be honest. But I would say, you know, I think part of it is just also trying to understand where our parents come from. So I know that most of our parents, you know, they're coming, they have, you know, they're coming from Eritrea and they only know of these like more vocational careers. That's where they've seen people be super successful, right? And I think that like when, once you start to understand and expose them to saying like, hey, finance is also a really lucrative field. Tech is also a very lucrative field. You know, working in brand marketing is also a very lucrative field. And like, you know, and if you have those skill sets where you're much better suited to be in one of those other like roles and be happier. I think that's also important for you to kind of like try to have that conversation and try to gain some sort of like understanding with your parents. And, you know, it's not necessarily saying, okay, no, I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer and I'm going against all of your wishes, but saying like, you know, okay, why, why do you guys want me to be a doctor or a lawyer? Right. What are the reasons and understanding the rationale, right? Because I think for them, it's just stable income, making sure that you're going to be well set off. And then if if that's the the rationale, then you can say, okay, well, this is the salary of a doctor and this is the salary of, you know, a PM in tech. And guess what? It's about the same, if not more in some instances, right? So once you kind of make that comparison, I think it's just really, you know, lack of knowledge, lack of information and, you know, a lack of education in some cases. But I think that once we're able to have those conversations, then you can get the support that you need. And I've been super grateful that, you know, my parents were exposed to, you know, other kind of, you know, careers outside of doctor and lawyer, but they were also just super supportive of me. And they knew, like, actually, I had this conversation with my dad yesterday. Like, I told my dad, um, you know, like, he knew I hated blood. There was no way I was going to be a doctor. I would pass out and faint, right? And then, you know, to be a lawyer, you have to be, like, super talkative. And, like, you have to be, like, you have to debate. And I was a very shy, introverted child. And I still think that I'm pretty shy, introverted, although I think I come off as a little bit more extroverted in these, like, in, you know, these, like, speaking sessions and and podcasts and, and that nature. But I was super, so I knew that law, you know, wasn't going to be for me. So why would you set me up to fail in in these careers that my personality just isn't a match for that, you know, I wouldn't be able to thrive in. So I think um, it was just really great to have their support. And I would just recommend for anyone that is feeling that pressure to just have that conversation, try to understand their point of view, and then try to help them understand your point of view and not seeing it as disobedience, but just saying like, okay, if these are your concerns, or these are the things that you're that you're aiming for, these are the alternative paths that can also, you know, get me there. Yeah. It's so I'm laughing because I feel like we all when you said like, you don't like blood, we all just look at each other like, me too, me too. Cause that is literally, that was my reasoning too. When my dad and mom were like, be a nurse. And I'm like, first of all, I would actually die if I had to put a needle in someone. Like that's, that's just not an option for me or see any type of blood. So I'm laughing cause I feel like we can all relate to that. But I also right. like that you said, like, I think a lot of it's just like lack of knowledge and lack of education because I do think that like, I mean, to this day, 
I don't even think my parents even know what I fully do, but they know that like I'm making a decent enough income and like, you know, I'm making good money working in tech. And so I think now that they have a better understanding of like what I do or what industry I'm in, they're like, oh, okay, wow. Like, you know, it's starting to click a little bit more than it did before. And it's funny that you mentioned like, you know, looking at a doctor's salary versus like a PM in tech, like I know people who are in sales who are making more than like doctors and lawyers. And so I think being able to explain that to like our parents and and let them know that, hey, I will live a stable life doing this career, I think will give them a sense of like ease and comfort and make them feel okay. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think, you know, when I first joined like Unilever Shea Moisture, and I was like, yeah, you know, the products, they have like shea butter in them. I'm pretty sure my mom thought that I was going to be like selling like shea butter, like on the side of the street or something. (laughs) And so it was a super humbling experience to kind of, you know, have her understand what I actually do, and that I don't just travel around like for fun and to hang out, that I actually like to work and meet people and have and, you know, have to work on a ton of different things. I also think that like COVID has helped her understand what I do a lot more too. Like she now, you know, I've moved back home for the past couple of months. So she sees me, you know, waking up every day at 7, 8 a.m., going to meetings, working on decks late at night. So she kind of knows like, okay, this is not just some kind of like fun, frilly job where she's just like, you know, like selling beauty products and just like traveling the world for fun. She like kind of sees the fact that like I'm working a lot and that I do a lot and she hears me like present and, and, and all of these things. So I think that like it also has helped her get a better understanding of what I do. So I think that that's been super helpful too. If I could find a job where I could travel the world and shea and sell shea moisture or excuse me, shea butter and make good money, I would do it. But it's also, I wanted to hear if this is maybe the experience that you guys had with your parents. I know I, I know you mentioned, Edin, that like your parents are a lot more liberal than the typical Habisha parents. But I also think another reason why my parents pushed me to being a doctor or lawyer is they found that like you know, roles, whether it was in tech or in the business field were more competitive and maybe more like more opportunities exist for white people versus like Habesha or black people where they're like, oh, you know, you're not going to be given these opportunities. So like do something that's like always in demand and regardless of your race, like, you know, you'll be able to find a job. Like, did you guys ever have those conversations or like, that's what your parents said to you guys? So I've never had them say that to me, but I can definitely see that perspective and can understand that point of view as well. Like I do think that, you know, doctors and lawyers will always be in demand, quote unquote. You know, obviously we've seen with COVID, like, you know, medical field has been, you know, they, they there has been a huge increase for them. But, uh-huh. you know, I do think it's super competitive in, in other fields, especially for, you know, for, for the Black community and for Black women in particular. And I think that you just have to try to figure out, you know, how can you best position yourself to get those roles and those opportunities? So, you know, for me, it was like via making sure that I'm going to like the best schools, making sure that I joined, you know, minority programs like SEO and MLT when I was, you know, in school and just making sure that I had a ton of exposure so that I could, you know, so that the level playing field could be a little bit more level. Um, although, you know, it's not equal yet to, you know, my white counterparts. But I think, you know, with all of those like kind of additional programs and making sure that you're setting yourself up for success, you do have a better chance at, at, you know, succeeding in those industries. Well, I mean, it's really just great to hear that, you know, you found a role that, you know, is rooted in your values, um, that you feel like you can, you're can you making an impact. If we were to take a step back and just kind of look at your younger self, like what advice would you give to your younger self or other Eritrean women who are struggling to find their path in life and their career and whatnot? 
Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, like you always know what you're good at. I think that like whatever you do as a child just continues to manifest yourself as you as you get older, right? So I think that you should like really try to hone in on your inner child, but figure out, you know, how can you monetize whatever that skill is or whatever that passion is, or how can you find the field that does that for you, right? So like for me, I always loved fashion and beauty, right? But I wasn't going to be a fashion designer. I wasn't going to start making beauty potions in my kitchen because I knew that the entrepreneurial path was going to be much tougher or working, even working in fashion was going to be not as lucrative. Um, you know, if you just worked at a typical kind of retailer, like it wasn't going to be as lucrative as doing something else. Right. So I had to figure out like what path made sense and working, you know, in CPG and working in brand marketing is a, you know, is a much kind of better suited path that matches my interest with like a good kind of like career trajectory. So I would say hone in on that passion and whatever it is that you enjoy doing as a child, but also talk to people that are in different fields and try to do, try to get exposure. Like, you know, look for mentors that you can just shadow for a day. Like, okay, you think you want to be a doctor? Like go to the hospital and shadow a doctor for a day. You think that you want to be an engineer? Like go shadow an engineer for a day. Like I think that when you're younger, uh, you know, people are definitely like much more willing to help. You have a lot of free time. So if you can do like different summer jobs or externships or internships or things that are just, again, I just always recommend getting a ton of experience to weed out what you don't want to do as quickly as possible. We think, I just think that's the easiest way to figuring out what you actually do want to do. And so, you know, I think like just making sure that you think outside of the box for those opportunities and just like talk to different people. Like I think you know, as kids, you're just taught to be a kid and play and focus on school. But I think, you know, you should try to explore some of these passions in ways that, you know, make sense for your age, obviously. Um, but just like reach out to different people, like look for other Eritreans that are doing things that you want to do. Um, and, you know, I think like this generation is super lucky because they're so big, you know, social media is so big. You can find anyone that's doing anything anywhere in the world, you know, send them a DM or an email and, you know, more likely than not, they'll be willing to connect with you. So I think they definitely are much better suited than, you know, than we were to kind of connect with people that are doing very similar things to what they want to be doing when they grow up. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I just want to add, guys, that like Eden is my mentor. And I don't think I've actually ever told you this, Eden, before, but I was plotting on you when I saw you on the at the HBS conference. She you was. like walked onto the stage with that check to award the person who won the venture capital competition. I was like, oh, I need to talk to this girl. Like, I need to connect with her. And I actually remember the first thing that you told me when we met up in New York was you loved working in fashion, but you also knew like what you were good at. And you're like, how can I find a role like where I can, you know, capitalize on my skills and still be working in an industry that I love. And like, I've taken that and like, it's really helping me. I've been using that to just kind of like gauge like what direction I want to go in and like finding a way to like apply what I'm good at in industries that I love. Yeah. So there you go. And, you know, Nas has a great strategy to finding a mentor, you know, go to an event where they speak, stalk them, follow up with them and, you know, make them your mentor without even telling them. I think it works really, really well. Um, no, but I love that. I think, I think that more people should do that, honestly. And I think that, yeah, you should just figure out like what you're good at. Like, as I said, I can never design a piece of clothing. I barely know how to sew. Like if a button falls off, I'm like, okay, how can I get this to the dry cleaner to get it fixed? So like, I knew that as much as I love fashion, like I wasn't going to be a designer. So I had to figure out how can I work in the industry, but not, you know, but, you know, understand that I had limitations to my skill set. So I definitely agree. Like figuring out, you know, how you can make it work is like the most important thing. Yeah. It's so funny. I'm about to put Naz even more on blast. 
when she came back from this concert and she or this conference, she literally was like, Oh my god, I just met like this bomb ass, like Eritrean girl, like a woman. Like she's like killing it in her career. Like she won this award. Like I'm literally about to make her my mentor. And she's from New York. So you already know we're about to be friends. Like she was going on and like she didn't even care to talk about anything else that happened at this conference besides the fact that like you were there. And I was like, sis, you it's funny that you said stalk because I'm like, you're low key giving me stalker vibes by like saying all this because she doesn't even know you yet. But it's funny to see how all this has come full circle. And now you're sitting here on our podcast. So I guess it kind of worked out that she did stalk you. (laughs) Yeah, I would say no stalking is a little extreme. But we had we had a coffee in New York, I think like a week or two after like right before COVID kind of happened. And then we were able to link up again, like over the summer when I was when I was back in New York, I just moved to Brooklyn. So I think it's been really good. Also, I mean, our parents ended up like knowing each other too, which is always helpful. Uh, and also like very like normal for our community. So that also like kind of helped yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, our community is like way too small. Like you're either related to someone or your parents know each other. Like it's it's insane. <laughs> yes. Uh, wait, actually, I'm just going to say a quick little story because I think this. you just said like you're related to someone. When I was younger, one of my um, like fake, co- you know, cousins, she was, she's not my real cousin, but one of my cousins, she went to a graduation party. I think she was like 15 at the time. And she saw this um, Habesha guy at the party and she was like, oh my God, he's so cute. Like, I think it was like her first real crush and attraction to this guy. And then she ended up um, later on finding out that like, he's like her first cousin. He like just moved from Europe to the US and like, she was flirting with him the whole time. And I was like, damn, like you just really never know. We go to these festivals thinking like, you know, are you going to find someone just to find out like, hey, they're probably your cousin. Like, it's just this world is too small when it comes to Habesha's. Yeah, it really is. Anyways, well, that pretty much concludes all of our questions. And I have one fun question that I want to throw at you that is off topic, but I'm just going to ask you. So if you could time travel, would you go back to meet your ancestors or forward in time to meet your descendants? Ooh, this is super tough and super challenging. I would have to say that I would want to time travel into the future and meet my descendants. I am really, really big about like leaving a legacy, like building generational wealth, like really trying to set my kids up. And I would love to see the impact of all of that. As much as as I want to know more about my ancestors, you know, I grew up very, very closely to my grandmother. So I feel like I have a good sense of my history. I'm also a very like a type A person. I always am planning for the next thing. So I think that if I had this like cheat code and got to see the future and got to see my descendants, it would like just make me feel like so much happier. Whereas right now I feel like there's so much in the unknown. So yeah, I would definitely choose going into the future and like seeing my descendants and hopefully, you know, they're really happy and they're really successful and they're making me proud. Oh, wait, Naz, I want you to answer that question too, because I don't think I've ever asked you. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say, like, that's a great question. And I didn't, I totally agree with you. I think setting up generational wealth and seeing that, like, you know, your kids and your kids' kids are doing well and also just like building off of what you started. So I love that. For me, so I actually would do the opposite, mainly because I'm actually really interested in like history and anthropology. I always tell myself, like, after I'm done with corporate America, I'd like go back and get like a PhD in anthropology. I, I'm really obsessed with like, Eritrean and like just East African history and just understanding like where we came from, like if, you know, just like our overall culture. So I would do um, my ancestors and I would want to go back to pre-Axum, pre-Axum Empire. Yeah. Wow. You want to take it all the way back. Okay. Yeah. Like 
Queen of Sheba. Like, I want to see what she was doing back then. <laughs> um, I love that. I I actually agree with you, Naz. I think I would do Ancestors too, only because, like, I unfortunately like both of my grandparents my grandpas died before I was even born so I would love to meet them and like my great grandparents as well and I feel like my descendants like I feel like you know by then I'll probably be dead and I'll be in heaven and I'm sure I could be watching them from above so I'll have that you know I can I can see them from heaven right like I I just feel like I'll have some insight of what's going on um with my descendants whereas I feel like with my ancestors like I'd love to just see like you know, what their lives were like and what they were doing in Eritrea at, at my age in their 20s and and what Eritrea even looked like then, you know, like it's so different now. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to see what it looked like 50 plus years ago. But yeah, I thought that was a fun little question. Um, Someone actually asked me that. So I was like, oh, let me ask them and see what they think. So thanks for answering, guys. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, on that note, Edin, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Hafte Hafte. Um, where can the people find you? I know, I think last time we talked about how you're low key trying to be a little influencer. So where can the people find you? Yeah, so I would say I'm really uh, big on LinkedIn. You guys can find me at Edin Zalo on LinkedIn, but also on Instagram if you want to hear a little bit more about my personal life and, you know, try to get influenced by me. I'm at Garden0F uh, Edin11. So it's basically Garden of Eden, but with a zero instead of an O. And yeah, looking forward to having uh, new followers. And thank you again so much, Naz and Wintana, for having me on Hafti Hafti today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. We're just so excited that you are our first ever guest. So we appreciate your patience. And hopefully you can come back for another episode. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thank you so much for coming and sharing the wisdom that you've shared with me with our other half days um, on the web. So thank you taking the time. Cool. Well, on that note, thank you all again for tuning in and we will see you guys on the next episode. Bye. Bye half days. Bye.